It's June 24th, 2022, and anti-abortion activists are cheering in the shadow of the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. In a video posted by Students for Life, one of the fastest-growing anti-abortion groups in America, a dark-haired woman wearing glasses yells into her megaphone. Students for Life President Kristen Hawkins is reading the text of the Dobbs v. Jackson decision, which just ended federal protections for abortion nationwide. This is the moment the anti-abortion movement fought five decades for. A battle that took 10 presidential administrations and millions of dollars to finally win. But this victory also marks a turning point. The end of Roe v. Wade was the cause that united more moderate anti-abortion conservatives and abortion abolitionists. A year later, clear rifts have formed between these factions and over where the fight heads next. From Carnegie Night News 21, I'm Henry Larson. And I'm Francesca D'Annunzio. This is America After Roe, a series exploring the forces that led to the reversal of Roe v. Wade and the ongoing battle to reshape America in ways that go far beyond abortion. Part one, a movement divided. In the year following the reversal of Roe v. Wade, a lot has changed for the anti-abortion movement. The Dobbs decision returned regulation of abortion to the states. But for many, that's not enough. A number of prominent groups want to abolish abortion across the land. They just don't agree on how to accomplish that. Some more public-facing groups with mainstream Republican support, like Students for Life and the nonprofit Live Action, are fighting to extend, in their words, equal protection for the unborn under the 14th Amendment. Hardline groups like End Abortion Now and Free the States, also known as abortion abolitionists, want to go further and criminalize those who seek an abortion. End Abortion Now's Zachary Conover explains it this way. From the moment of fertilization, that's a human being that exists within the womb of a woman. And to unjustly take that life with malice aforethought is murder. Yet opposition to strict abortion bans has made some in the movement hesitant to endorse harsh restrictions. Groups like Focus on the Family are hoping the public will tolerate a more incremental approach. Here's Nicole Hunt, a spokeswoman for that group. We realize that in America today, there's 50 states, and so those laws can look a lot different based on the population of each state. Republican presidential candidates gearing up for the 2024 run also can't seem to reach a consensus on abortion. Former Vice President Mike Pence and U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina have both voiced support for a 15-week national ban. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump has criticized rival Ron DeSantis for the six-week ban he signed as governor of Florida, saying many people feel it is, quote, too harsh. But I believe the greatest progress for pro-life is now being made in the states where everyone wanted to be. That's one, one of the reasons they wanted Roe v. Wade terminated. It's not the first time the issue of abortion has divided members of the same political party. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. That's Walter Cronkite on January 22, 1973, the day justices ruled 7-2 to two to protect abortion during the first three months of pregnancy. Roe v. Wade was a landmark decision that came at the height of social liberalization in the United States. 
It's also widely considered to be the moment that galvanized a new coalition of voters into political action. The founding myth of the religious right, as it's often described, sees its origins in the time immediately following Roe, when a coalition of outraged evangelicals rallied under the banner of the Republican Party. In reality, Roe v. Wade was not, there was not a consensus opposition to it in 1973. The sort of standard argument about the religious right was that Mormons, Catholics, and evangelicals are all outraged that the Supreme Court has created a federal right to abortion, and this is what mobilizes them into political action. But in fact, the response to Roe v. Wade and the politics of abortion were really complicated. This is Neil J. Young. And I'm the author of We Gather together, the religious right and the problem of interfaith politics. What we know of as a pretty consistent anti-abortion politics and movement really doesn't come together until the very late 1970s. In fact, just two years before Roe was decided, the Southern Baptist Convention, the governing structure for many American Baptists, which now stands firm in its anti-abortion stance, passed a resolution advocating for limited access to abortion. After Roe, evangelical opinions on abortion began to change. Very quickly in the 1970s, it's clear from evidence that I believe about a million abortions, legal abortions, were being performed every year. And this is shocking to evangelicals who, again, believe it was going to be a rare medical procedure. And they start to believe, oh, well, this is being used as a form of birth control. Jerry Falwell and other religious leaders and also political activists who are religious conservatives, they are watching all this happen. And they're hearing in their churches how much this is getting talked about. And they realize it is a galvanizing political issue that can move lots and lots of potential voters. And so in the 1978 midterms, abortion is a front and center political issue from a lot of these grassroots organizations. And all of that builds into the 1980 presidential election, mostly run by a moral majority. The Moral Majority is the political organization founded by televangelist Jerry Falwell that opposed the Equal Rights Amendment, gay rights, and abortion. It helped deliver that election to Ronald Reagan. I couldn't believe when I began in the ministry that our Supreme Court would ever legalize abortion on demand that cost one and a half million lives of little babies last year. But it has happened, and once we become numb to the dignity of human life before birth, it isn't long that we are numb to the dignity of human life after birth. Falwell and a number of other conservative leaders started building an infrastructure of lobbying groups, funding centers, and outreach programs to cement this new voting powerhouse at the center of Republican politics. The party didn't have a position on abortion before Roe or even immediately following the decision. So, of course, at first, Republicans were more likely to support liberal abortion in the late 60s. Like, they were just more likely to do so. They were small government conservatives. That's Jennifer Holland, an associate professor of history at the University of Oklahoma. She's the author of Tiny You, a Western history of the anti-abortion movement. But of course, that shifts by the mid-70s. That's when you start, like, sort of have these very partisan divides start to congeal. And I think 76 is the year that the Republican Party puts it on the platform for the first time. But for most, the rest of the 20th century, it's really like those Republicans were sort of anti-abortion in name only. They just didn't do a lot and couldn't do a lot when they got into office, which made it cheap politics. 
Holland says that over the next two decades, Republicans struggled to advance abortion restrictions at the federal level, but kept up their appeals to religious conservatives who grew increasingly dissatisfied with the lack of progress. Protests outside abortion clinics continued to drum up attention, even as political action stalled. You know, the movement starts being less satisfied with that, especially because the Republican Party like a moment tries to be a big tent that will include pro-choice Republicans. Religious conservatives like James Dobson, founder of the influential evangelical organization Focus on the Family, pushed back against Republicans who endorsed less stringent abortion policies. Holland says Dobson was uniquely effective at revamping the party's position on abortion. Here he is speaking at a 1990 rally for life in D.C. I can just tell you that I have determined that for the rest of my life, however long God lets me live on this earth, I will never cast one vote for any man or woman who would kill one innocent baby. Soon a different approach would yield real results for anti-abortion advocates. Legal efforts to kill Roe with a death by a thousand cuts, chipping away at that ruling piece by piece. The Supreme Court's 1992 decision in Planned Parenthood v. Casey upheld Roe, but allowed states to do more to restrict and regulate abortion. And the reach of the Hyde Amendment, which bans use of federal funds for abortion, was expanded over the years. Initially, you had groups like National Rights Life Committee and Americans United for Life that were able to make progress from the movement's standpoint by passing incremental laws and defending them in the Supreme Court at a time when Roe was the law. Mary Ziegler is a legal historian at the University of California, Davis. She's one of the nation's leading researchers on the anti-abortion movement. She spoke with us over the phone. And then I think that the, who was in that, that kind of dominant role did shift a little bit over time. In the 90s, once struggles over same-sex marriage really got underway, you had more input coming from kind of what you would think of as Christian right groups, so not single-issue, multi-issue groups, that wanted to intervene. And that started with the Alliance Defending Freedom. The Alliance Defending Freedom, or the ADF, would become a powerhouse in the religious right. The group helped craft and defend the state law that ultimately dismantled Roe. We have a legislative team at ADF also that helps to craft model legislation, advise states on good legislation. That's Denise Harley, director of the group's Center for Life. And often when those bills are passed, if there is a lawsuit challenging those laws, we at ADF then, you know, remain involved throughout the litigation to continue to defend those laws that we believe are really good public policy and also um, completely valid and constitutional. Um, And that is what happened in the Dobbs case as well. Good morning. We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. The justices handing down the highly anticipated ruling on abortion. Bottom line, Roe versus Wade is overruled. There is no constitutional right to an abortion in this country anymore as of today. Here's Mary Ziegler again. Before Roe, the anti-abortion movement was a lot more hierarchical than I think More recently, since Dobbs, and even I think to some degree right before Dobbs, there has been kind of a fragmentation of authority. And so you see a lot more, I think, organizations vying for strategic dominance than you did. And that's introduced a lot more uncertainty in terms of, um, you know, what kinds of bans you see. 
Post-Dobbs, one of the loudest voices in the movement, argues for harsher restrictions, not just for abortion, but reproductive health care more broadly. Students for Life launched in 2006 as a small-time group with a handful of national chapters. Its rise to prominence has been shepherded by its president, Kristen Hawkins. Today we gather to shine our light right here in Washington, D.C. We demand protection at conception. That's Hawkins this summer, on the anniversary of the Dobbs decision. Along with federal protection for fetuses under the 14th Amendment, the Students for Life platform includes a total abortion ban with no exceptions for rape or incest. The group also staunchly opposes birth control, like IUDs and Plan B. The organization and others, including Live Action, 40 Days for Life, and Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, also support a federal ban on abortion from the start of a pregnancy. And we will not grow weary, we will not rest until high noon comes. And even then, we will work to ensure that the sun never sets on human rights for all human persons in America. This summer, more than two dozen anti-abortion leaders, Hawkins among them, published an open letter in the National Review. They insisted the same principles that were passed to ensure equal protection for black Americans should, quote, protect defenseless children in the womb. It remains to be seen if their platform will gain popularity with American voters who largely favor some kind of abortion access. You've seen a lot more people identify as pro-choice. Post-ops, if you just, I mean, for some background, abortion opinion in America is incredibly stable. If you look back over the last, you know, 40 years prior to Dobbs, same share of Americans are pro-choice, same share of Americans are pro-life. And then Dobbs happens and everything sort of shifts and changes especially for young people. This is Ryan Burge, a political science professor at Eastern Illinois University and a data analyst who studies religion in America. He's also a Baptist pastor. Abortion was an issue that pushed a lot of moderates in the suburbs towards the left because it's more of a symbolic issue. It was a symbolic issue until the court stepped in and actually made it a real issue. And now the GOP is realizing, wow, we've we've probably gone too far on this and we need to sort of you know, step back. We like the idea of overturning Roe. We don't really like the implications of overturning Roe. And that's where a lot of Americans, I think, have landed. That's not to say the anti-abortion movement hasn't seen success in the years since Dobbs. More than 20 states now have laws on the books banning abortion at the six-week mark or earlier, though some bans remain on hold amid court challenges. Several others have passed lesser restrictions. Religious legal groups also continue to use the courts to strip abortion protections. The advocacy group Alliance Defending Freedom is leading a case that aims to ban use of the abortion pill Mifepristone. Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine et al. versus U.S. Food and Drug Administration et al. versus Danco Laboratories LLC. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court, Sarah Harrington, on behalf of the federal defendants. In April, a Texas judge who formerly worked at a Christian conservative legal organization invalidated the FDA's approval of the drug from more than 20 years ago. The medication remains on the market for now, while an appeals court considers the case. Groups like the American Medical Association note the drug has a strong safety track record that's been re-examined throughout that time. I am glad we have courts to step in when there's administrative abuse or where You know, the FDA that has one job to protect our health and safety has ignored its job and put politics over health and safety. That's Denise Harley of the ADF again. 
The implications of this case are expansive. It's not just about banning the abortion pill, although the ADF would call that outcome a victory. If successful, the case could open the door for additional challenges to prevent the distribution of any instrument involved in the abortion process. It all centers around the so-called Comstock Laws, whose namesake was an anti-vice crusader. From 1873 until about the 1920s, early 1930s, they were used to go after people who mailed anything used for contraception, for abortion, for sex toys, for immoral purposes, whatever it was that the people in charge of enforcing it thought was immoral. David Cohen is an abortion rights attorney and professor of law at Drexel University. He says the anti-abortion movement is hoping a sympathetic Supreme Court will decide the Comstock laws should be enforced to their full extent. If the Comstock Act were reinvigorated the way the anti-abortion movement wants it to be right now, then it would pretty much ban abortion everywhere. Mary Ziegler also believes the most likely avenue for any broad nationwide abortion restrictions is Comstock. I don't think you're very likely to get a national statute banning abortion because it's it's hard for me to imagine even a Republican-controlled Congress doing that, especially from fertilization. So I think that your best bet is the Comstock Act, precisely because it doesn't require popular support or politicians to pass anything. <laughs> you know, it just requires a few federal judges like in the U.S. Supreme Court to interpret the Comstock Act in a specific way. A May Gallup survey shows over 60% of Americans favor having abortion pills available with a prescription. That's an increase from past years, and it reinforces the idea that most Americans want to see compromise on abortion. Like the median voter is not for a six-week ban. They're also not for you know uh, abortion up to nine months either. They're somewhere in the middle, and I think the, the GOP can't say that publicly, but that's where they want to be. For groups like Students for Life, that kind of trade-off just won't fly. President Kristen Hawkins says she's looking for candidates to, at the very least, support a six-week ban on abortion if they want her group's backing. I think at the very minimum when we're talking to candidates running for federal office that they want need to acknowledge that there is an important role for the federal government ending the atrocity of abortion and two, at the very minimum, uh, pledge to sign into law a National Heartbeat Abortion Prevention Act, which would save a large number of lives from abortion as we work towards building the coalition we need to ensure 14th Amendment protections for all human beings. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, Ralph Reed. On the weekend of the first anniversary of the reversal of Roe, as Students for Life rallied in front of the Lincoln Memorial, 2024 presidential candidates addressed the Faith and Freedom Coalition's Road to Majority Convention. It's an annual gauge of the political interests of the Christian right. Abortion remained top of mind. Here's Mike Pence. We must not rest and must not relent until we restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law in every state in this country. Every Republican candidate for president should support a ban on abortion before 15 weeks as a minimum nationwide standard. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former President Donald Trump touted their track records, too. We have also delivered in Florida on promoting a culture of life. And that means signing the heartbeat bill into law that protects unborn children when there's a detectable heartbeat. It was the right thing to do. Don't let anyone tell you it wasn't. 
to be the most pro-life president in American history. But a different issue, more than any other, really energized the crowd. When people wanted to put gender ideology in the schools, we drew a line in the sand and said no, not on our watch. Talk of banning gender-affirming care for minors and instating other limits related to the LGBTQ community, upstaged abortion, immigration, and religious liberty, and drew cheers from the crowd. And something else I find hard to believe that I have to even say, it's so ridiculous. It's so horrible and so ridiculous. I will keep men out of women's school. And I will sign a law prohibiting child sexual mutilation in all 50 states. And on day one, I will reinstate the Trump ban on transgenders in the military. Professor Jennifer Holland sees parallels in some of the abortion and LGBTQ-related measures being proposed in states. And I think it's really interesting, the similarities between anti-abortion and anti-trans language, especially in sort of the idea that parents and especially doctors have deceived people and are doing medical things to them that damage them. And that you're actually saving these like young trans kids or people seeking abortion by not letting them get access to this medical procedure. As politicians gear up for next year's presidential race, Holland says the real battle over LGBTQ and abortion issues will stay where it's been happening since the turn of the century, state houses and courts. So I don't think it's going to be this is going to be a new mass movement that's going to rise up on the socially conservative side. It certainly is motivating enough people and motivating certain legislatures to like pass these. But I don't think it's going to be like, oh, all of a sudden we really start seeing a public opinion shift in, in real ways. But I think it really could matter if they get first legislatures and then courts to sort of take away those rights. And as Republican candidates shift their electoral talking points to issues that go beyond abortion, groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom and Students for Life will remain at the forefront of those battles, intent on litigating and legislating under a biblical worldview. Our view is very clearly a, a belief in the gospel and the word of God as the inerrant truth um, that God has written in his word and left for us. That motivates us to care about things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, parental rights, sanctity of life from womb to tomb. Next time, we'll take a look at one group of state lawmakers whose members have been busy reshaping America's relationship with abortion, LGBTQ issues, and religion. But whose ultimate goal, eliminating the separation between church and state, is far more ambitious. America After Row is a production of the Carnegie Knight News 21 program at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. This episode was written and produced by me, Henry Larson, and Francesca Denunzio. Additional reporting by Ming Sun Lao. Our editor is Regina Revizova, and the executive editor of News 21 is Pauline Ariaga. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and APM. Find more stories about America's reckoning with abortion at americaafterrow.news21.com. Thank you.